All right. Good morning. Good morning, Steadfasters. We're glad you're here. How many of you are here for the very first time? Never been here before. All right. Welcome. Be sure and meet these people. They've never been here before. That includes you, Will. <laughs> all right. Get them down. Okay. Well, we're glad you're all here. Please open your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 42, as we're going to be studying uh, 1 through 17 today. Genesis 42, we'll start in verse 1 and we'll go through verse 17. This particular passage is a reminder to us that we all have within our <clears throat> very beings an ever-present understanding of past and present actions behaviors, and thoughts. It's an ele element of, man, of uh, humankind that God has designed into all of us. It's called our conscience. And every human being possesses a conscience. You're familiar with the terms clear conscience. I have a clear conscience. Or a guilty conscience. Sometimes we have one, sometimes we walk around with the other in our mind. And who knows this? No one knows what's in your mind except God and yourself. And the thing that resides in your consciousness is the many memories you brought about with your thoughts, your speech, or your deeds. And unfortunately, what fills our conscious memory the most is our regrets of things that we've done or things that we've said or things that we've thought of. One very wise person told me one time, Jeff, the worst thing to die with is your regrets. I have tried my very best throughout my entire life to not have regrets, and yet I have many. And I'm sure you do as well. Mine are embedded deep in my conscience. How about you? Do you have regrets about things that you've said, things that you've done, things that you've even thought? Are there words that you wish you had back? Are there actions that you've taken that you wish you had back? Thoughts that you wish now had never flashed before your, your mind. I bet you do. From time to time, Debbie and I get the opportunity, uh, unfortunately, to counsel with people who are struggling with their marriages. And I had a young man call me just this week, and he was crying pretty badly on the phone. And I said, what's going on? And he said, I've said some things to my wife recently that I just, I deeply regret. How do I fix it? I said, you can't fix that. It's already been said. Folks, what 
proceeds from the mouth comes from the heart. So at that moment when you said it, the evil in your heart came out and you meant it. And yet afterwards you are so sorry for it. As this young man cried on the phone, he said, I just want her to not have that hurt that I created. And so we spent about 20 minutes talking about that, trying to encourage him how he might go about doing that. Folks, we all have regrets. And I bet you have them in your mind as well as I do. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. But for now, I want to get into the reunion of Joseph and his brothers. And then we'll, at the end, talk more about what we were just covering. But I wanted to set the scene for you as he sees his brothers for the first time in 13 years. 13 years he's not seen his brothers. He doesn't know if they were alive or dead. It's been 13 years since the 10 brothers took Joseph and threw him into a nasty pit and then plotted to kill him. Then they pulled him back out of the pit only to sell him as a slave to some Midianite travelers headed for Egypt. Never expecting to see Joseph again, these ten men had, at that point, they had to have lived with a conscience that was not clear. Can you remember those tragic days when we covered it, as we studied it? Yes, Joseph at that time was a 17-year-old jerk. He was a pompous, self-centered, very proud individual. He spied on his brothers for his father to make sure they were doing what they were supposed to be doing, and then he would run back and tattle on them. He had dreams. These were grandiose dreams, but they were all self-centered and he didn't at the time realize it, but it was God that placed those dreams in his life. We talked that in a previous, previous lesson. But did Joseph spying on them and his dreams of selfish grandeur, did it justify their betrayal of him as a brother? Did it justify the brutality that they showed him? And the question on Joseph's mind when he finally encounters his brothers after 13 years is this. Do they have regrets for what they did? Or are they the same brothers and nothing has changed? Or has time and circumstances changed them? Folks, for every human that has ever drawn breath on this earth, there will be a time of reckoning. I don't want you to miss this. A time of the revealing of the absolute truth 
There'll be no fog anymore. There'll be no innuendos anymore. There'll be no deception. The truth will be laid bare. A time for justice to be settled. Don't kid yourself. It's going to come. For each and every one of us, that time comes. And it's not just reserved for our unrighteous deeds, but it's also reserved for just foolish words that we said. Listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, verse 36. He says, but I tell you, this is Jesus speaking to them, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So don't think that that's not going to happen. The blessedness, though, of Jesus Christ and the work on the cross is what saves you and I who believe in Him from that reckoning. Why? Because He paid for it with the wrath of God on the cross. But for those that are outside the family of God, they're going to pay for every single word. So let's read further about the reunion of Joseph. And the first thing we'll see is the aim of their reunion. You know, I would suppose that Joseph's brothers had no knowledge of where he went. All they know is they got some money for selling him into slavery. And they have no idea where he went, what he was doing, even if he was alive. They don't know that. In fact, the past 13 years had probably been like the previous 13 years for the brothers. They were just tending the sheep in Canaan and making a living for their families. Jacob, their father, was just living life. And and unfortunately, he was still feeling the loss and the disappointment of his favorite son, Joseph. No longer being in his life. Oh, how he missed Joseph. If any of you have experienced the loss of a close relative, then you too realize they may be gone, but they're not forgotten. My father died in 1976. I was 23 years old at the time. It's been almost 48 years since he died, and to this day, my sister still brings him up in every conversation that we have. She can't get past it. The hurt was so deep, the loss for her was too great. And as we'll see when we read verses 1 to 4 here, Jacob has certainly not forgotten Joseph. And instead of moving on from that loss of Joseph, he indeed has replaced Joseph in his life with who? With Benjamin. Benjamin represents two huge losses in Jacob's life and how sad Jacob must have been. 
Those two huge losses are Joseph and his wife that he loved so dearly, Rachel. But just like time marches on and as life continues, when we lose a loved one, the same had occurred with Jacob and the family. And part of that moving on for Jacob and his sons was the need for sustenance. They needed food. You and I just can't say, well, I'll just live life and stay in my house and grieve and I'll never think of anything else. No, you still need to live life. In fact, the famine that Joseph interpreted in Pharaoh's dreams that we learned about a couple weeks back has come upon the earth. It says... In Genesis 41, 53 to 57, when the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph has said, there was a famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And slipping down to verse 57, it said, the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. Because the famine was severe in all the earth. You know, you and I have never experienced that. I have never once had the situation where I didn't know where my next meal was coming from. And you haven't either. But these people at that time were in a situation of starvation. So Jacob's family is in the same predicament as every other family, and their food supplies are running out. And per God's well-orchestrated plan, there's only one place they can go to get food. Where is that? It's Egypt. And guess who's in charge of Egypt's food stores? Someone these ten brothers thought they would never meet face to face again. They figured once he was on that caravan headed away from them, they'd never see him again. You know, God has an interesting way of bringing events about, doesn't he? To make things happen just perfectly in your life and in my life and in Joseph's life as well. So let's read... First, verses 1 through 3, and see how this reunion takes its initial steps. As we read about the father prompts the ten brothers. Genesis 42, 1 through 3 reads this. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy some from for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. Okay, let's stop right there. Jacob learns of the availability of grain in Egypt. Now, how did he learn of it? We don't know. And that's really not important to the story as a whole. It was probably, though, from other travelers who had gone to Egypt looking for food, and those travelers just happened to be there when Pharaoh instructed Joseph to open the storehouses that they had collected during the seven years of plenty. Regardless of how he found out, 
Jacob realizes there's a supply of life-sustaining food in Egypt, and we need it. So he goes to his sons, and he tells them of what he has learned. And, and our text here indicates that they obviously don't react with motivation or initiative. They don't really uh, seem to jump into the picture as going to lead this, this uh, mission into Egypt. And so he chides them by saying, what are you staring at one another for? In modern vernacular, basically, Jacob is saying to his son, get up off your rears and get down to Egypt and get us some food. It was as if they were not about to volunteer to do it until he scolds them. You know, I'm beginning to believe that these guys were not really the brightest crayons in the box. And they, and they were pretty self-centered about their outlook on life, you know? So why is Jacob having to prompt them? Why didn't at least one of them show the initiative to suggest going to get some grain? You know, that's just another question that you and I, when we get to heaven, will track one of those brothers down and uh, talk to them about. So Jacob sends them off. But as you read in verse 3, only 10 of the 11 sons are sent away. And that's where we come to the father protects the one brother. Verse 4, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. Jacob withholds Benjamin from going as he continues to show favoritism to the sons of his precious but now departed wife Rachel. It appears that Jacob simply did not trust the sons of Leah, Zilpha, and Bilhah. Jacob's probably thinking that since these ten sons did not protect Joseph while he was in their care, what is to convince him to send his favorite Benjamin with them? Why would I do that? They've already proven that they can't take care of one brother I'm going to give them another one. And you know what makes it weirder about that? It's the fact that Benjamin by this time is probably between 25 and 30 years old. Okay? And he's probably got a wife and a family... Yet Jacob controlled his family with an iron fist. These ten brothers may have been and probably were in the neighborhood of between 30 and 40 years old with their own families, but their father was the ultimate authority. And that's how patriarchal systems work. The father is the ultimate authority regardless of your age or your capability or your family situation. Their society also most likely had uh, arranged marriages as some societies do today. It's quite different in our society, isn't it? 
So Jacob holds Benjamin back, and he sends the ten sons out to Egypt. And let's read what happens next in the acknowledgement at their reunion, verses 5 through 8. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Jacob had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. The big moment finally arrives 13 years later, and Joseph is the first one to be surprised. These people just come up to do a transaction. We're going to give you money. You're going to give us grain. It's a simple transaction. And he looks at them, and he goes, I know you. Now, he doesn't let them know that. He just looks at them and goes, oh, okay. And he's probably going, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Well, there's ten of you. Mm, I've seen your faces before. Okay. And they may have changed a little bit in size or weight, but they were essentially the same ones that sold him into slavery. They were, this is uh, uh, the path that they took down there. And I'll show you what they looked like in just a minute, but I want you to notice their path that they took. Uh, It's just a a simple um, path directly down what they used to refer to as the the King's Highway that kind of is like a a biblical error interstate that they traveled down. And it went all the way up into Syria. It just came through Israel. And they traveled by donkey. In perspective, it took several days for them to travel to Egypt as it was about 150 to 200 miles. Can you imagine doing that with a donkey? And it would have taken them about 7 to 10 days, which is about 3 miles per day is about the best you could do walking with a donkey. Excuse me, 3 miles per hour or about 25 miles in a day. And it would have been windy and dusty. And they would have most likely have taken a similar route to the one that Joseph took when he headed down with the Midianite uh, traders. It was a well-worn and used route, and that's where they came down. And so now let's talk about the detection of the brothers. As we read in verse 7, Joseph recognizes his brothers, and like I said, they may have changed a little bit in size and weight, But they were essentially the same guys, and they were sheep herders. And their bodies looked like sheep herders, and their dress looked like sheep herders. And they smelled like sheep herders. They hadn't discovered deodorant yet. And so when they come in, Joseph recognizes them. And we also read here, that they bowed down to him. Does that sound familiar? 
It should. We'll discuss that in just a minute. But within the first few minutes of the reunion, Joseph knows who, the, who they are, but they don't know who he is. But why did they not recognize him? Good question, huh? Let's talk about that for a minute as we discuss the disguise of the ruler. There's several reasons why they would not have immediately recognized Joseph. The first one was the fact that they believed Joseph, even if he were alive, was a house slave or a sheep herder somewhere in rural Egypt. Well, they may have considered him to be dead. They, they didn't know what happened to him. But they certainly didn't think he would be in the metropolis capital of this, this modern country and he also likely would not be in charge of anything important like trading or money or storehouses. That, that, that just wasn't Joseph to them. So that's the first thing. That would have been a doubt in their mind that this was the guy that was their brother. Secondly, they probably believed he certainly would not be in Pharaoh's service since he was a Hebrew. And he came to Egypt as a slave. So why would they think he would be this Egyptian official? And thirdly, and the most convincing reason that would have kept Joseph from being recognized is the way that he looked. He dressed like an Egyptian. This is what an Egyptian would have looked like in biblical times. The point I want you to see is he's very clean-shaven. It's according to Herodotus, the Greek historian who lived during the 450s B.C., the Egyptians, both men and women, would shave their entire bodies from head to toe. And it had a lot to do with the dry, uh, excuse me, with the hot and humid climate of Egypt being near the Nile River. So Joseph didn't look like a sheep herder, but he looked like an Egyptian aristocrat. Who knows that guy? <laughs> Anybody ever seen him? I mean, he's the gold standard of Egyptian officials. What's his name? Yul Brenner. All right. I, that made me want to go back and watch that movie again. So this is what probably disguised his true looks from his brothers. But there's a fourth thing that would have kept his true identity a secret. And it's the way that he speaks to them. He speaks to them, one, harshly. He speaks to them with a suspicious tone of voice. And before they could recognize his real voice, he he really needed to put them in a position of fear. So he doesn't speak to them in Hebrew. He speaks to them in a, in a language he had mastered over the last 13 years. He's speaking an Egyptian dialect of Arabic. wish my son was here. He could actually make it sound like uh, that dialect. But Joseph had been for 13 years an Egyptian. And he needed to live the life as an Egyptian. And so 
the only language he heard in Egypt was Arabic, and so that's what he spoke. So that would have been another reason they would not have recognized him. Next, let's see the ac accusations at their reunion, 9 through 14. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, It is I said to you, you are spies. To keep them off balance, Joseph immediately accuses them of being spies. But why would he do that? Let's talk about that for a second as we talk about the ruler's remembrance. As Joseph's memory flashes back to the incident of being greatly mistreated and sold into slavery, the Holy Spirit brings to Joseph's memory the dreams he had about his brothers. You remember those dreams? Joseph's mind was filled with amazement that the very thing that occurred in his dream, them bowing down to him, is now taking place. This was no simple coincidence, folks. This was the hand of God letting Joseph know that God was truly the one in sovereign control here. If Joseph had ever questioned why he was being blessed in Egypt, and you know that he was, he got blessed time after time after time, this was a concrete answer to those questions. It was as if, as if the Holy Spirit was saying to Joseph, remember that dream where the brothers bowed down to you? Remember that one? Well, here it is coming to pass. And Joseph is thinking, all of this favor I've been granted, it wasn't because of my good looks or my sharp intellect, but rather it was God blessing me for a purpose, and I now have proof of it from the dreams. But Joseph also remembers what? In his second dream that he had, it included his father bowed down to him. So Joseph wanted to learn of how his family was doing, and the way to do that was to accuse them of being a spy. Now, how does that work? The way that works is what happens when you're accused of something. You go into a little room, they put a bright light in your face, and they start asking you a lot of questions, right? I've never been there, so I'm just telling you for a friend. <laughs> he remembers that second dream. And by accusing them of being spies, he could interrogate them a little further without suspicion. Being accused of being a spy would lead to such questions as, Who are you? 
Where did you come from? What are your true intentions here? Were they the same self-centered, bickering brothers that he once lived with, or had they had a change of heart? What, what kind of people were they? And that's where we read of the brothers' requests. During the responses to these accusations, they began to reveal the details that Joseph was looking for. They said they were simply there to buy grain because they were all sons of one man, and they were innocent, I mean, excuse me, honest men. Well, you and I know that they're not honest men. They stole their brother off. They put lamb's blood on his multicolored coat, and then they take it back to their father and say, "Uh uh-oh. They deceived their father into believing Joseph's dead. They're not honest. They deceived Jacob. They lied to cover up the fact they had sold Joseph. And they said they had just come to Egypt to buy grain. But Joseph wanted more information. So we read of the ruler's rebuke. When Joseph refutes their argument of being simple men just trying to buy grain for their families, Joseph fires back with the accusation accusation of being spies again. And that's when the brothers also declared they are a family of 12 brothers. Of one father. And of the other two, one was still with the father and one was dead. One was no more. Okay, the information is beginning to flow out now. And that told Joseph that both Jacob and Benjamin were still alive. Because he said, there's one back with the father. Okay, I know Benjamin's alive. And I know dad's alive. Okay, that's good. And with that information, Joseph concocts a plan to be able to see his brother, Benjamin, and to test the ten brothers' integrity. And the brothers, they bought this plan. I mean, they're not in a position to uh, not be a part of it. They're in such an emotional state of fear and bewilderment that they never thought for a second if this Egyptian official was Joseph. So it really puts them kind of off guard. In fact, they're fighting for their own lives now. This is probably how Joseph felt when they turned on him. And Joseph is probably thinking, well, brothers, life has come full circle, hasn't it? And the fear for your life that you feel now is what I felt in that pit. You were once in control, and now I am. And let's finish this by reading the analysis at their reunion. The last three verses here. Verse 15. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. 
Joseph is using this opportunity to analyze the hearts of his brothers as he continues to interrogate them and test their true character. And let's see what happens. First, we see the ruler's insistence. Joseph's plot to gather info on his family, it just gets thicker and thicker. He's truly looking at every angle of this situation. First, were they telling the truth? We, we know they're liars. Were they telling the truth that Jacob and Benjamin are alive? Or is one or the other of them dead? Maybe they'd sold Benjamin into slavery like they did Joseph. Or maybe they killed him as well. And if they did do away with Benjamin, did that cause Jacob to die in despair? Joseph doesn't know any of these answers. All he knows is what they've told him. Are they telling the truth? Or are they liars? Second, Will they really bring Benjamin back if I let him go? Folks, let's be honest. These were not the finest upstanding men in Canaan. I want to read you what R. Kent Hughes, a commentator, says about them. Apart from Benjamin, and I quote here, Apart from Benjamin, Joseph's brothers were a miserable lot. Sons two and three, Simon excuse me, Simeon and Levi were guilty of premeditated genocide and the slaughter of the unsuspecting Shechemites. You can read that in chapter 34. Number one son, Reuben, had committed incest with his father's concubine in an attempt to secure ascendancy over his father, Jacob. You can read that in 35.22. Next, all ten of them had taken young Joseph and stripped him and beaten him and thrown him into a pit with fratricidal intent, which was only averted by a passing caravan and his sale into slavery. Number four son, Judah, then impregnated his daughter-in-law, excuse me, Tamar, who had disguised herself as a Canaanite prostitute. That's in chapter 38. So by any estimation... These patriarchs-to-be were less than promising as bearers of the promise of Abraham and root stock for the covenant nation that would emerge from Egypt at the Exodus. These ten needed to be confronted with their guilt. They needed an awakening of conscience. They needed to mourn. They needed to genuinely repent. End quote. But the question is, would they? Well, that is exactly what God's orchestration of these events is about to reveal. Will they do that? So Joseph decides to see what they're made of as we read of the brothers' imprisonment. Joseph decides to have them savor a taste of prison life like he suffered twice, once in a pit in Canaan, at the hands of his own brothers, and then again in Egypt when he was falsely imprisoned and spent years there. So Joseph puts them in prison for three days. Why three days? Well, no one knows. There's a bunch of theories out there, but I'm not going to waste our time talking about that. 
Lots of theories, no concluding answer. But Joseph not only puts the ten brothers in prison, he makes a promise to them that if they do not bring Benjamin back, they will never leave Egypt as they will be considered to be spies and they will be executed. As commentator Hughes writes, at this point, Joseph puts his brothers to the test by afflicting them with what they had done to him. They had oppressed him, now he oppressed them. They had accused him of spying, now he accused them of spying. They had thrown him into a pit, now he tossed them into prison. And I'll add, they threatened to kill him. And now he gets the opportunity to return the threat. So what did they do for three days? Well, those three days provided time for total reflection of their lives. They most likely discussed who would go back to Jacob and beg Jacob to let them bring Benjamin to Joseph. Someone had to do it. Probably none of them wanted to do it. But somebody had to do it or they're all facing the executioner. Little did they know that death threat was nothing. It was never going to happen. Joseph wasn't going to execute his own brothers. So let's sum this up in an application of our lives. How does this affect you and me? Well, it all depends on how many regrets you're harboring in your heart. If you have regrets, then this lesson is a reminder that you still have time to ask for forgiveness. You still have time for restitution or restoration for those sins or mistakes that you made. God can heal all wounds of the heart if you're simply willing to repent and seek forgiveness. Now, it doesn't change the damage that was done. But it's the first step in restoring a broken relationship. And it takes time for wounds to heal. The application to our lives is this. Whatever regrets you have, settle them now. You do not want to take those regrets to the grave. So you say, okay, well, what about the brothers? Did they ever show any regret? What happened with them? All right. Well, let me ask you a weird question. How many of you are familiar with a place kicker in football? Well, for the place kicker to be successful, he has to have the ball placed in just the right spot. It's a teamwork exercise. And actually, folks, the whole lesson that I've given you is merely a setup for Rod for January the 7th. I got the ball in my hands. I put it on the spot in anticipation of Rod kicking it successfully through the goalpost. And what is this ball we're setting up and kicking? Well, that takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the lesson. It takes us back to where we discussed a guilty conscience and a regretful heart. How will Joseph's ten brothers react to this experience? 
I want you to read this quote. I put it on your sheets, but I want to read it to you. The thing that reveals character is involuntary response, not planned response. It's those things that catch us off guard and reveal the real weakness of our hearts that tell us who we really are. And that's what's happened to the brothers. They didn't plan on meeting this person. They didn't plan on getting interrogated. This is how are they going to respond to an unplanned situation. Sitting in prison certainly was a good testing for those ten scared and now confused brothers. How will their character show up? Will they ever feel remorse and regret for what they did to Joseph? Or will their hard-heartedness continue to rule their very lives? That's what we'll find out in January. So come back. And Rod's got the answers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to reflect not only on Joseph and his brothers, to reflect on our own hearts, to ensure, Lord, that we have pure hearts, that we don't have regrets that we could reconcile. Lord, give us the courage to do that. Give us the humility to ask for the forgiveness when it's needed. Help us, Lord, to be more Christ-like in our character. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.